Well, this morning, I'm uh, looking forward to jumping into a new series. You know, we had the holidays last week. We're getting into a new series on the um, Holy Spirit. Now, as soon as I say that, the, the, the neo-charismatics in the bunch, they start smiling. They're like, glory, hallelujah. And then the like really super conservative people, they start folding their arms and you know, there's, there's jokes about people on both sides of the divide when you talk about the Holy Spirit. There are some people that are so spiritual that when they pour their alphabets into their bowl in the morning, God spells his will out for them for the day. It's amazing. And then there are people on the other side that are so scared of the Holy Spirit that when the Bible says that Jesus comes to the door and he knocks, they're the kind of people that look at the people, and if it's the Holy Spirit, they pretend like they're not home. And so the, the challenge is there are all kinds of ways when uh, we talk about the Holy Spirit, the person and the power and the reality of the Holy Spirit. There's just some weird stuff that people talk about. And so today, I, I really feel like getting into this new series, um, and I don't say this to be dramatic, I feel like I get a chance to introduce my friends to a friend of mine. Because uh, growing up in a, a Baptist church, um, I think I knew that there was a Holy Spirit. There wasn't a whole lot of teaching about it. There wasn't a whole lot of practical um, stuff. It, it seems like the only thing I ever heard about the Holy Spirit was the crazy stuff that they do on TV just so you give them money. And that's not the Holy Spirit. That's a show. You know, that's running a business. And, and if that's what the Holy Spirit is, I don't want anything to do with it. But the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit all over the place. And my concern is, um, for most of us, I think when we read the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, Man, God seemed to be doing something back then. He's speaking on every page, and there's things that are happening. And then we look at Christianity today, and we go, what broke? What's, why doesn't he work like that anymore? And the truth is, he does. And so we, we'll find sometimes that we'll be in some texts, and we'll talk about um, kind of how the Holy Spirit works. One of the things that's fun, there are... Um, 288 occurrences of the word spirit, pneuma, in the New Testament. So have gone through the entire New Testament every time the word occurs. And sometimes that's referring just to man's spirit. He had an agitated spirit. Sometimes it's, most of the time, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And have gone through, done a massive research product, project, and came up with five main ways that the Holy Spirit's involved in our life. Some of them are going to be ways that you know about. He's involved in communication. When the apostles get arrested... They don't have any time to prepare. He goes, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will help you say what you need to say to testify to Christ. The Holy Spirit works through communication. Um, preaching. It's not just an, a human act. It's something that the Holy Spirit adds its blessings to, to uh, aid in the proclamation of the gospel. Um, the Spirit's active in sanctification. The Spirit's active in organization of His church in participation by people. And so there's these five categories that we're going to look at. But today, it's important for us to kind of lay the foundation for where we're going to go. And so uh, we're going to be all over John 14 through 16. We don't, have, um, we don't have like a little passage that we're focusing on. We're going to look at a couple different verses kind of topically to get a foundation here. But we'll find ourselves in really what is the magnum opus of um, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16. I would really encourage you, if you are looking for something to read uh, for your devotions, Camp out in John 14 through 16 with me over the next couple of weeks. I think there's some really rich stuff to, to deal with there. And I want to start with our first point. If you're following along in the, um, the bulletin insert, if you're following along on version, 
by, by making the point that the Holy Spirit is not a problem, he's a person. It's easy for us to think of all the problems when we talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Well, is this allowed or is this not allowed or what, why did this happen then? It doesn't happen. There are challenges, okay? Does anybody here have questions about the Holy Spirit? I do too. I do too. Uh, I don't have it all figured out. I've learned some things along the way. But the Holy Spirit is not a problem. The Holy Spirit is a person. I want you to look with me at John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. I want you to see what it says, where the Bible begins to kind of lay this foundation for uh, the personhood of the Spirit. Verse 16. I will ask the Father, this is Jesus speaking, I will ask the Father, and He, the Father, will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of the truth. That's important because Jesus says He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He says that the Spirit is the Spirit of the truth. He is the Spirit of the truth. The world is unable to receive Him Because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Jesus is teaching on the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And you read those couple of verses and you go, all right, I see that he says that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He's a counselor. He's going to come forever. He's going to, we know him and other people don't. How does this talk about the Holy Spirit as a person? Well, English teachers, please forgive me, okay? Because I know I'm going to get, no, yeah, don't say that. But uh, it, it's true. Throughout John's writings in John 14 through 16, he intentionally uses bad grammar, which is good theology. It is bad grammar, but it is good theology. And here's the issue. Uh, you're not aware of this, but the word for spirit, pneuma, is from a gender perspective, neuter. It's not masculine, it's not feminine. Yet every time Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit, he doesn't refer to it in a neuter fashion. He doesn't refer to it as an it or a force or a thing. He refers to the Holy Spirit as a he. When he comes, I will will ask the Father and he will send you a spirit. He is the spirit of truth. The world does not know him, it does not see him, but you know him because he remains with you. John chapter 14, verse 26, look at what that says. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name, and he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. John chapter 16, this one gets crazy. John is like going nuts with the pronouns here. Uh, John 16, verses 13 and 14, he says, when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me, because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine, and this is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. This is unmistakably bad grammar. And people who were hearing this in the first century would go, oh my goodness, this guy must be uneducated. He doesn't know how to speak. But he gets the the gender of the language right every other time. 
except for here because he is intentionally violating the rule to teach about the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He's a he, not an it. Moreover, he has all kinds of attributes of a person. He has intelligence, he has emotion, volition, he's active, he has a will. <clears throat> like he desires things. So he says, um, it's, it says, the Holy Spirit speaks in Acts chapter 13. And he says, separate for me Barnabas and Saul. The Holy Spirit wants, it's ready for the gospel to expand around the world. The Holy Spirit makes it really clear, I want these two guys. Have them stick around after church. I got to talk to them. And so he expresses a will. Paul, in his missionary journeys, wants to go into an area where the gospel has not been proclaimed. And yet in Acts 16.6, it says the Holy Spirit forbade him. Things, it's, don't forbid. People forbid. He has emotions. The Bible says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible also says we can quench the Spirit, but you quench a thing. You know, there's a fire and you dump a, dump a bucket of water on it. You have quenched a thing. You don't grieve a thing. You grieve a person. You grieve something that is alive. And it says the Holy Spirit can be grieved. He can also be blasphemed. You're, you're not saying the truth about a person. You can't do that about a thing, only about a person. The Holy Spirit acts. He speaks. He witnesses. He guides. He convicts. The Bible says that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf for the Father with us. And in, in John 14 that we just looked at, where he says, I'll ask the Father and he will send you another uh, counselor to be with you forever. Jesus does something really novel in a very brief space by calling the Holy Spirit another counselor, another counselor. I'm going to send you another counselor. What do you ask? What question do you ask yourself? All right, if Jesus is sending me another counselor, who's the first counselor? Who's the first counselor? It's Christ himself. Christ himself is the original counselor. And he says, he tells his disciples, he says, guys, listen, I'm getting ready to go. A couple, couple weeks, I'm going to say it is finished, and I mean it, and then I'm going back to my home. And it's good for you that I go away, because then another counselor will come, and that will be a good thing. Jesus is saying, it's okay for me to leave. You don't have to freak out. This is a good thing. But by calling him another counselor, Jesus is doing two things in a, a tremendous economy of words. He is drawing a, indicating a distinction. I'm a helper. There's another helper. I'm a counselor. There's another counselor. I'm an advocate. There's another advocate. But he's also showing dignity. There's two words that he could use for difference, uh, for, for uh, the distinction that he's trying to draw. He can say he is an alos different, which means another one of the same kind. So um, if you have uh, dessert on Sunday night, okay, and uh, Jonathan Brown, you know, likes his ice cream on Sunday night. You know, I, I don't even know. Do you? Okay, good. We'll run with it. He likes his ice cream. And uh, Kaylin is just such a sweet and loving wife. She has served him his, his bowl of ice cream. But it's only got two little bitty scoops. And so Jonathan finishes his bowl of ice cream and says, may I have another? If she brought him um, sliced cucumbers, Something wouldn't be just right. Because, yeah, that is another of a different kind. What he's implying is, I want another of the same kind. That is alos, the same. That's how Jesus refers to uh, the counselor, another of the same kind. So whatever Jesus is, he's sending another of the same kind, as opposed to heteros. Now, that's a Greek word, but you understand what that means, because when we talk about heterosexuality, that means man and woman. Another of a different kind. And if you're married... 
you appreciate the fact that your wife is another of a different kind. And so he's not saying, I'm sending you another of a different kind. He's saying, I'm sending you another of the same kind. So I am the original counselor, but I'm sending you another one, somebody who's distinct but dignified because he's God too. He's another person like me. The Holy Spirit is a person. And number two, <clears throat> when the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as this comforter, the word that's used to describe him in the Greek, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. The paraclete. Now, you don't see this um, on the surface in your English translations, but there are five times in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is referred to, as, the word is paraclete. And that's translated here as um, counselor. We don't really have a word for it. Like, we don't know how to translate the word paraclete. And so instead of trying to translate it, because all the translations lose something in translation, the best thing I can do is give you a little bit of a Greek lesson. And so when we take the two words that make up paraclete, para, kletos, um, para is the word from which we get words like parallelogram, which are two lines that run parallel. There's another para. Um, they're running alongside something. Kletos is the verbal form to call. So the Holy Spirit, literally, as the paraclete, is the one who is called alongside us. That works. You get that? So the Holy Spirit is one who comes alongside us. Now, that's not a catchy little title like counselor, comforter, advocate. That We don't just call him the, the one who's called alongside. You know, that, it sounds like an, an, an Indi- American Indian name. You know, he, here comes the one who is called alongside. You know, here comes, you know... Uh, you know, a dog jumping in a river, you know, uh, it doesn't make sense. You need a title. And the problem is whenever we refer to the Holy Spirit as the comforter, um, it's a little bit of a problem. Now, the problem originates in church history. Anybody here of a guy named John Wycliffe? Did that name ring a bell? John Wycliffe was one of the early Bible translators, translated the Bible from Latin into English. If you have an English Bible, you owe a debt to John Wycliffe. And, um, the word comfort in the 1400s and 1500s meant something different than what it means today. Let me give you an example. Here's how John Wycliffe would have translated Philippians 4.13, which is a verse that you know and love. I can do all things through Christ who comforts me. Because comfort in the Latin meant strength. When you hear the word comfort, what do you think? You think a little flex off? You think strength? You think warm blanket, cozy bed, Earl Grey tea, you know, at just the right temperature. Whatever your, you know, we talk about uh, comfort food, mac and cheese, mm, comfort. So here's the point. The, the word, when we talk about the paraclete or we talk about the comforter, it's a very rich word that in a lot of times has been translated as comfort, um, but it's a word that can really lead to some unfortunate misunderstandings. Some very unfortunate misunderstandings because language changes over time. And while Wycliffe thought it was a great thing to translate parakletos as comfort in Philippians 4.13 and these five passages in the New Testament, it means something different today. And it's a problem. Because listen, um, even for American Christians... Uh, the God that we worship most often isn't Jehovah Jireh of the Bible. It's you, you, yourself, you know, me, myself, and I. And I think when we hear this word comforter, that really sits well with us because now 
The Bible's just confirmed what we already know, that God has provided everything that we need for life and godliness, including a divine massage therapist, including a divine butler to care for my needs and greeds, because you know what? God is more concerned about my comfort than I am. That's not possible, by the way. Is there anyone who's more concerned about your comfort than you? Nope. Anybody ever been sick? You know, I said, man, I wish my wife, my husband, rub my back or my feet. Now, that's love, um, you know, because when you're not well, there's nobody that cares about your comfort as much as you do. And my fear is by using this word comforter for the Holy Spirit, we've completely changed the whole mission where we actually think that the Holy Spirit's about a warm blanket to make us feel better about ourselves, and not about the mission to which God has called us. We're more concerned about our consolations than our task. And we think that the Holy Spirit becomes this kind of genie in a bottle that if we want it and we ask the right way and we say, you know, enough, you know, Bible words, maybe God will give it to us. That's not what it's about. The point is this. There is a vast difference between being Christian-focused and being Christ-focused. The Holy Spirit was not given for you and your comfort. The Holy Spirit was given for a mission. He was given to strengthen you. And when we make the Holy Spirit all about us, we have completely changed the mission for which He came, to glorify the Father. And so the Spirit came to be focused on Christ, not to be focused on the Christian and his comfort. I hope you get this. Because we're, we're, we're about to jump into something here that I'm afraid if, if I, not that I'm a television salesperson, but if I can make you an offer that you can't refuse and say, here's how you can experience the power and the reality of the Holy Spirit in your life, but you have to do this. Then you're going to go, well, if I have to do that, I'll just live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. I'm fine with that. Thank you very much. And it's this. My thir third and final point, the Holy Spirit was given for a distinct purpose. He was given for a distinct purpose. We're going to jump around here for just a second. I'm going to start in John 16, 7. John 16, 7 is a very simple verse. Jesus says, nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit. It is good for you. Uh, the New American Standard says, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, paraclete, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really quickly here, in about a minute, expose a little bit of bad theology on my part and on your part. If we could, um, for a second, imagine that um, we're going to go up to that baptistry and it becomes a time machine. And you could go back to anything in history you could go back to. What would you go back to? Y'all can talk. What would you want to go see? Like, I think the Sermon on the Mount would be pretty awesome. Maybe the walking on the water, feeding the 5,000. Maybe Lazarus? You know, watching him get up out of the grave? And you probably have an idea of that, maybe, maybe David and Goliath. I, I think Jesus trumps David. I'm sorry, my, 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 my wishes are better than yours. Um, but we all have something that we want. And here's the challenge, is Jesus is here telling us in this passage 
that him going away and not being physically present is better and more advantageous for the disciples than his physical presence. And yet, every single one of us, if we had the chance to choose here this morning, we're handing it out after service, and you can have a physical Jesus or an invisible spirit, which would you choose? You would choose the physical Jesus every time. You would rather go back to see something that, you already have the story, you'd want to go back and relive it instead of experience the power of an invisible spirit that's with us, that Jesus says, it's actually good that I'm not with you. And we say, no, 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 that's not good. We would rather have what you say we can't have. It's, it's bad. And I admit the same thing. I would rather go backwards and see what he's done in the past than look forward to what he's giving us the power to do. And he says, listen, it's good for you that I go away. Huh? John 14, 16 and 17, that's the one that we uh, looked at to start off. He says that... Um, He's going to ask the Father. He'll give another uh, counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth who the world is unable to receive, but we can receive because we know him and he remains with you and will be in you. We see a huge difference. Jesus is about to say it's finished. He's about to go home. He's not going to be with us anymore. He's gone. He's back to his eternal home. He says that the spirit will come to be with us forever and he has come to be not with us, but to be in us. So that's great. We know where he's located. He's not beside us. He's in us. We know his duration, his tenure. He's not temporary. He's forever. What's his purpose? Well, the Bible gets into that. John 14, 26. Go down just a couple verses. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name and he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. And we've got to be careful here when he says that the Holy Spirit will remind you of all things. This doesn't mean like in some kind of matrix kind of fashion that you can download auto mechanics and like through a pious prayer. Oh, I can fix engines now. When he says he's going to remind you, he's going to teach you all things, he's not saying that you get this encyclopedic knowledge of everything that is. It's Christ-focused. Everything that we need to know about Jesus, everything that we need to remember about what he said. I ask this question because like, I understand this. We're finite. We don't get it. We, 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 we mess up. Has anybody ever forgotten something important? Anybody? I'm not talking about like you forgot to pick up milk on the way home. I'm talking about like you forgot somebody's birthday, anniversary, you know, uh, major obligation, and it's on your calendar. You just miss it. You think when Jesus told the disciples they were leaving, they're like, uh, wow, I should have been taking notes all this time. You didn't tell me you were leaving. I would have taken better notes. What, how are we going to remember what he said? He says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Like, if I leave it up to human strength, you're going to forget. But that's why the Spirit is coming, to teach you all things and to remind you of everything I have told you. John 16, 13, and 14 gets even more explicit. <clears throat> he says here, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. And then listen to this. He will not speak on His own but he will speak whatever he hears. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like a soldier under command. He's not there to have loose lips. He's not there to spread rumors. He's there to say what his commanding officer has said to him. He says he's not here. He's not going to speak on his own initiative. He's going to speak what he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to 
you. The Spirit has no initiative on, on its own. He is here to tell the disciples what is to come. I think referring to Jesus' death and resurrection. And he says here, verse 14, He will glorify me. You want the job description for the Holy Spirit? Jesus just gave it to you. The Holy Spirit's job description solely is to glorify Christ. He glorifies Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. He glorifies Christ through the sanctification of his believers. He glorifies Christ by the organization and participation of his church. He's glorifying Christ. And so here, here's, here's the challenge, man. Some, some of you, you hear that we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and, and, and this, this critical spirit kind of comes over you because you see the junk that's on TV, and you see these churches that dance around, and they make much of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you that the Lord Jesus Christ himself says that's bunk because the Holy Spirit's not there to make much of himself. He's there to make much of Jesus. So these people that want to talk about, hey, we got the Spirit. Yes, we do. We got the Spirit. How about you? You want to know how they got the Spirit? They talk about Jesus. They don't talk about their experience. They don't talk about the Spirit because the Spirit is the shy person of the Trinity. He's God. He's worthy of worship. We can pray to Him. We can ask Him to intercede for us. But His purpose is not to glorify Himself. He works in His function like a floodlight or a telescope. Like a floodlight or a telescope. Think about this. I don't know if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., but Marcy... Uh, lived all of her life till she went to college in Washington, D.C., and always loved it when we were dating or engaged to go to D.C., because when you're driving to D.C., you know what the largest building in Washington, D.C. is? Washington Monument. This big, giant obelisk. Nothing is, by code is allowed to be bigger than that. And from wherever you're at in the city, especially at night, they have so arranged these floodlights around it so that you, your eye is just naturally drawn to it. And you don't go... Wow, those are some effective floodlights. You don't even notice them. You go to the monument during the day, and you don't go, man, there's some candle wattage in those lights. You don't even notice them. Their, their whole purpose is to point to the object that they're trying to draw your attention to. The floodlights not going, look at me, look how many lumens I am, look how effective I am at lighting something up. No, its whole purpose is just simply to serve and to focus our attention on where the light is already shining. Some of you have landscape lighting in your house. Landscape lighting is not, its purpose is not to make much of itself. It's to accentuate the natural beauty of your home or your landscaping or a telescope. A telescope doesn't exist to make much of itself. It takes something that we can't see and it brings it into our sight so that we can behold the glories of God's created universe with our naked eyes that mere mortals can't see without a telescope. They exist as floodlights and as telescopes to glorify something that we might not be focused upon. And so I want you to hear very clearly. I think, I think churches uh, that make much of the Holy Spirit tread very carefully of embarrassing the Holy Spirit because he knows what his mission is. We just seem to be the ones to forget it. You will never hear the Holy Spirit go, look at me, look at me, pay attention to me, don't pay attention to him, pay attention to me, listen to me, pray to me, look for my favor. No, he's going to say, look to him. He's the one who has life. Listen to his words. Hear his word and find his joy and peace. Don't get to know me, get to know him. Go to him, get 
his life, receive his gifts, not me. I think there's a great illustration of this. It's called the day of Pentecost. Jesus tells the disciples, man, I got a great mission for you. It's a worldwide mission. All right, we got it, Lord. What do you want us to do? He goes, well, at first, I don't want you to do anything. I want you to wait. Wait? Seriously? Like, my first job as a disciple is to wait. Yep, wait. And they wait. Finally, the Holy Spirit shows up. And how does the Holy Spirit prove that what Jesus says here about the Holy Spirit's desire, job description being to glorify me? Because what's the very first thing that the Holy Spirit does when he shows up? Peter preaches, and 3,000 people get saved in the name of Christ. Christ is glorified through the preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit, and more people get saved than were ever followers of Jesus while he was alive. At best, there may have been five or 600 people who were followers of Christ. And yet, when the Spirit is finally given, and Jesus says he's not here to make much of himself, he's here to speak what he hears, he's here to glorify me, the day of Pentecost gets here, and the Holy Spirit proves it himself. He's here to glorify the Lord. Now, this is important. I'll say this. I'm starting to wrap up. The Holy Spirit's goal is not just focus. We talk about his role as kind of like a telescope or a floodlight, focusing our attention on Jesus. It's not just focus, it's connection. It's connection. And here's, here's the point. God wants his people to know and experience him. Like, y'all good Christians. Like, you're in church, you know? You're, you're not the bad Christians that sleeping in this morning. You're good Christians. You're in church. And yet some of you would say your experience of the Christian faith is very dry and dusty. It's dehydrated and shriveled up like a raisin. It's not plump and hydrated. It's just not healthy. You're doing what you know you need to do. But there's not a whole lot of joy in the journey. It's a very dry experience for you. God doesn't want your experience to be like that. He wants you to be connected to him. And so here's the deal. You know how you get connected to God? Through the Holy Spirit. God the Father has loved us. God the Son has died for us. God the Spirit takes everything that the Father and the Son has done and he applies it to our life. And so if we want to experience God, the Spirit's not an option. So if you're afraid of the Holy Ghost, your experience of God is going to be different. And when we talk about the Spirit being involved in glorifying Christ, I'll say this. I really, I really do believe this. If the Spirit's purpose is to glorify Christ and we don't experience much of the Spirit, could it be because we don't talk about Jesus enough? We've got a group of about 25 people today from 1 o'clock to 4.30 going to be involved in evangelism training. We're going to go out. We're going to train for about two hours and then we're going to go out. We're just going to say, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to just direct us to the people that we need to share with. Hopefully it's not raining, you know. There will be people in the next three and a half hours who will experience more of the Holy Spirit because their, their intention is to proclaim Christ than perhaps they've experienced in the last 31 years. If you want the Spirit, you've got to proclaim Jesus. Here's what's great. It's a twofer. If you aim at the Spirit, Jesus gets thrown in. If you aim at Jesus, you, you might miss the Spirit. 
But if the Spirit's role is to help us strengthen us for our witness, that's a good thing. Here's what I don't want for you. I don't want you to think that our faith is just a set of beliefs, a set of doctrines, or that it's a a lifestyle to which we adhere. Those are all good things. Listen, doctrine is good. Most of you would profit by quadrupling your doctrinal knowledge. Knowledge isn't enough. The lifestyle is important. How we live is important, but where's the relationship? And so the question is, for you, is your experience of Christianity more about rules or is it more about relationship? My fear is that we think of God as this really busy teacher. And he walks into the classroom and says, boys and girls, let me get your attention. Here's your assignment. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go. I'll be back at some point in the future to come check out. And he has left the room, given us this big assignment to figure it out on our own. And at some point in the undisclosed future, he's going to come back and check up on our work. Friends, that's not Christianity. There is a power and a presence to be had in doing our assignment that is awesome. And I I close with this story. It's a a passage of Scripture. Uh, The guy that, if there's anyone, that if Jesus just showed up, probably the only guy in the Bible that could go, what's up, bro? I want to tell you, at the very end of the Bible, how he experienced somebody that he knew in the flesh and the blood. And it's the story of John writing the book of Revelation. You'll see it up here on the screen. Revelation 1, 9 through 17. This is an abbreviated version of that. John says, uh, it's me, John. I'm writing the book. I'm on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. This is important. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I think both of those are probably pretty important. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. Anybody want to take a guess who that loud voice is? I think if he wasn't in the Spirit, he wouldn't have heard the voice. So I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw. And then the Bible goes into this incredible description. His hair is like fire and his clothes are so white you can't even look at him. He's got this candle stand. He's got all this stuff and his sword. And The person in the Bible that is referred to as the beloved disciple, the person in the painting of the Last Supper who as they were uh, sitting, kind of reclined with his head on Jesus' shoulder. Perhaps his most bona fide flesh and blood friend says, hey, good to see you again. No. He says, I saw him. I fell at his feet like a dead man. He had an encounter with the resurrected Christ Because he was in the Spirit. And friends, God doesn't want to give you power just to conscript you to be a private in his army. That's part of it. You have an obligation. You have a duty to fulfill, and you need his power to do it. But that's not it. It's not just that he wants you conscripted. He wants you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants a connection with you. Not just your service. He wants your heart. He wants your friendship. He wants your service. And the only way that we get it is through the Spirit. 
So I promise you, well, I, I can't promise you that you're going to have some kind of weird vision in this sermon series, that your alphabets are going to line up, that you're going to like make a grilled cheese and see the Virgin Mary in it. Uh, that, I can't promise you that stuff is going to happen. You're going to be eating a Dorito and see, you know, uh, sign a cross. I mean, I can't promise any wacky stuff. And if there is, don't, don't put any stock in it. But I can promise you that God wants a relationship with you that maybe you don't even want. God wants a power for you to have that perhaps you've never experienced. God wants to walk with you in a way that might make you a tad bit uncomfortable. But God's not going to come down in the flesh and do it. He is going to do it through His Spirit. The question for us is, do we want it? Pray with me, please. Father, we must acknowledge that we have to repent for turning a relationship with you into a set of rules to follow. Father, relationship is never like that. There are rules. Father, we don't focus on the rules. We focus on the relationship. And so I pray that right now as we begin this series and kind of dedicate it to you, Father, that you will help us to desire the right things, that you will give us a, a unique freedom to uh, come to the end of ourselves. There is a very real temptation to come to church and get dressed up and make it look like everything is fine. Some of us have even come to church this morning hiding grievous sins, trying to make it look like everything's all right. But we know that it's not. Father, we can't hide our sin and be in a growing relationship with you. I, I pray for my brothers and sisters that this promise of your power and your presence will so overcome their heart, their soul, and their mind that they won't hold on to anything that you don't want them to hold on to. That there will be confession of sin, that there will be restoration of relationships, that as you begin to demonstrate your power, even through our group of merry band of brothers and sisters that are going out to share today, as small and as finite as we are, that we might know your power, that we might see you glorify your great name through our meager efforts. So Father, we are aware that apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. We know that with our heads, but then in our hearts, we live like we actually can do something without you. So I just pray that you help us to come to the end of ourselves, to the end of our rope, to find that you have a presence that will sustain us, a power that will encourage us, and a fellowship that will strengthen us as we seek to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray.